God has even seen fit to create a people for himself, to save them out of the world and bring them into relationship with one another. It's called the church. So here's a question. What makes a good relationship? You could think of tons of things. But what is like one core essential thing of what makes a good relationship? Isn't it love? What about love makes a good relationship? Isn't the good relationship where the parties in that relationship are free to love one another? And from that love, isn't the good relationship the relationship where the people seek the good of one another? So you look around the world, you maybe look in your own life. What's the problem then? I mean, it seems like it's such a simple answer. Just love. Well, what's the deal? Well, the trouble with all of that, trouble with that word, is that we want to define love. We want to define what's good for others on our own terms. And that's what we see in the world. You see people everywhere wanting to define what is good and what is loving for their neighbor. And when we define love on our own, when we define what is good for others on our own, you know what that's called? You know what scripture calls that? Sin. Because what we're doing in that moment is we're trying to take the place of God. Because he's the one who gets to define what love is, what's good. And here's the fundamental issue. How we handle our relationships can all be traced back. Every single relationship and how we're interacting and it can be traced back to our relationship with God. We're meant to have, above everything else, above every relationship, we're meant to have a good relationship with God. Well, here's the question then. Do we submit to God's defining the relationship? I mean, isn't that what being God means? that he, not we, gets to set the terms of the relationship? I mean, that, that's the definition of God. So here's the question. What does relationship with him, a good and loving relationship with him, look like? That's what I hope we'll see in our text this morning. So would you stand as we read in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15 all the way to verse 24. Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas 
not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest it Manifest yourself to us and not to the world. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. We have a seat. So, what does a good, loving relationship with God look like? Well, Jesus instructs us. He says, we should live with the God we say we love. We should live with the God we say we love. Now, Scripture has a lot to say about living with God. But the question we need to consider today in living with the God we say we love is this. Who is the God that we are to love, and what does he do? We as Christians are to believe that God is three persons in one essence. Okay, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not a what, he's a who. And this has historically been called the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And this is the God, God three persons in one essence, who wants to relate to us. And each person of God wants to relate to us as well. So as we look at this text, let's begin with the Holy Spirit. First, God the Holy Spirit comes to help us. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. What's our relationship with God, the Holy Spirit? What is it supposed to be like? Well, it's defined by three things, I think, from this text. First, it's defined by our love for Jesus according to Jesus. Because Jesus begins, as he says, with a conditional statement. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we truly love Jesus, we should keep. And do you know what keep means? It means to hold fast to. It means both treasuring and doing. We should keep his commandments. <laughs> and that might be one of the most ambiguous statements. Well, what are his commandments? That we should keep them. Because you're here... You may have some inkling that you want to know what God wants you to do. Well, what are his commandments? Well, Jesus in this passage uses, throughout the passage, commandments uses three words. Well, two words. Commandments or word or words interchangeably. So basically that means what Jesus sees as commandments is his teaching and his example as a whole. It's not just one little ethical command here, one little ethical command there. No. Obedience to God is a holistic thing. It's a whole person thing. And we're to look to our example, Jesus, what, he, what did he say, and what did he do? One passage in Scripture that gives a good example of, of if you need specific commands, 
which they are, they're there, they're there, but they're all part of a whole. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23 says this. It says, and this is his commandment. Right? So he's like making it really clear. Like We have good, some good. This is his commandment. Right? Two things. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another, just as he has commanded us. And these two commandments might be the most important for us to recognize because a lot of people today are walking around saying saying and doing, quote, good things and saying that they love Jesus, but if you press them that they trust Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, that they actually have sins to be forgiven, and that Jesus Christ is the only way to a right relationship with God, and if you press them that, as to whether they greatly love Jesus' bride, the church, you might see through their so-called love. So what's our motivation for doing good? Is it us? Is it the accolades we get? Is it the praise of men that we get? Or the feel-good that we have? Or is it Christ? And here's a question. If you're not sure, have you ever asked Jesus to make the distinction clear to you in your life? I mean, we're supposed to have a relationship with a person. And if you have a question and if you have an issue with a person, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go talk to them about it. Ask them the question. Jesus, am I doing this for me or am I doing this for you? Our love for Jesus is not defined by us. Because of ourselves, in our sinful state, we will believe that it's our merit, our good deeds, even our felt sincerity in praying a prayer. That is what counts toward God. Our relationship with the Holy Spirit is defined by our love for Jesus according to Jesus. But let's assume that everybody here wants to obey Jesus, wants to love him by obeying his commands. We're in trouble then, aren't we? For we cannot obey Jesus of ourselves. In fact, Scripture was written because there was a problem. And the problem was is that we broke God's law. We broke his word. We rejected him. And that brought about the mess of sin that we're in. So how can we possibly obey? How can we possibly love Jesus? Especially if he isn't physically here. Our relationship to the Holy Spirit is defined, secondly, as a relationship like having Jesus with us and in us. Because look what he says. He doesn't just leave it at the conditional statement. He says, and I will ask, this is verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Jesus is about to leave his disciples in this text, but yet he so loves his followers that he promises to ask God the Father to send the Holy Spirit to be with us so that we can actually love him. Listen to how he says it. If you love me, you'll keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, 
Did you notice the and? That's not a, if you do this, then I'll pay you back with the Holy Spirit. This is, this is what I'm going to do as a guarantee for, peop- for the people who I love, for my church. I am going to ask the Father, and He is going to give you the Holy Spirit as a gift. Before we have any other spiritual gift, we are given the gift of God Himself, the Holy Spirit. And He loves us, and He's and Jesus has him calls for him to come so that we can have someone to come alongside us and help us love and show us what loving looks like. And that's what the word helper means here. I will send you another helper. Now that's not like your your kid who's help who's helping you in the kitchen or helping you carry the ladder. That's God himself uses the word he is a helper. He's not inferior to us in any way. He's not unable in any way. But the reality is, did you, have you noticed in our lives how we need help to live the Christian life? You want to love your enemies. We need help. Open your Bible and understand it. We need help. But let's remember the promise. He gives it. He gives help. So when we are commanded to love our enemy, we're not to look at the impossibility of the command, we're to look at the possibility of the person who enables us to obey the command. When we're given a Bible to read, and we can't make sense of it or head or tail of it. We're not to look at the fact that this book is thousands of pages long. We're to look at it and say, God, you can help me. And I can understand this with the Holy Spirit. And not only that, he's a helper who will be with us forever. Now that's good news. Because we're not just left to our own devices now, and God isn't just here to help us get through this life successfully. No, He is with us forever. In the Old Testament, God the Holy Spirit was taken away at times. But in the New Covenant, now that Jesus has died on the cross and risen, the Holy Spirit never goes away once He comes to you. Through repenting faith. And our relationship, thirdly, is defined by who the Holy Spirit is. So He's not just the helper, He's not just with us forever. Those are amazing. We should stop there. But no, He goes on. He says, and the Spirit of truth. Remember the logic that Jesus is using in John chapter 14. What does He say? I am, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So when the Holy Spirit of truth comes, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to be about the truth. 
is going to be about Jesus. And this is actually why the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. Because they reject Jesus the truth. They can't see him or know him. But for those who believe in him, good, good news. Verse 17, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's not, those aren't stages of Christian life, by the way. It happens both at the same time for us who trust in Jesus. With and in. There's so much more we can say about the Holy Spirit, and Lord willing, over the years, we'll, t- we'll take some time. But this should greatly encourage us that we can and we should live with a God we say we love. Because the Holy Spirit comes to help us. God himself comes to help you live the life with God we say we, whom we say we love. But it's not just the Holy Spirit who comes to help us. Secondly, Jesus the Son manifests himself to us. Because what does Jesus say next? Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he says at verse 21, jumping down a little bit, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. As we look at this portion of the passage, we need to ask the question, how is Jesus manifested to us? Well, first he's manifested in the resurrection life. Because Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. These are guys who had spent three years, day and night, with Jesus. This afternoon, my kids are going to say goodbye to their grandparents as they're going to head back home. I remember as a kid, every time I left my grandparents when they were far away, we just cry our eyes out because we don't want to say goodbye. This is what it's like for those friends, those disciples of Jesus. They don't want to see the man they've come to love, the man they trust, the man that they say at this point would, they would follow anywhere. They don't want to see him go presence of God in the flesh, leaving. It's terrifying, but what does he say? I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How does he, man- how does, how does he manifest? Well, first, what does manifest mean? It can mean, in it, as it does in Scripture, in various parts of Scripture, that there's an appearance of Jesus. It means making known. It means showing In fact, manifesting also means making recognizable. Because however it looks or seems, Jesus will be recognizable as present in some way to the one to whom he manifests himself, to the church. So here's a question. How more potently or powerfully is he manifested than an empty cross and an empty tomb. He was on the cross, not there anymore. He was in the tomb, not there anymore. And why? So that he would be manifest to his disciples. 
Now for the original first century first disciples here, he did come to them three days later. And actually, Scripture records that no unbeliever after Jesus was raised saw Jesus. Why? He wasn't manifested to them. They couldn't recognize the glorified, risen Savior. They rejected him in his earthly life. They continued to reject him. And they wouldn't have recognized him in his resurrection body because something was fundamentally different. There was resurrection life. And Jesus says, because I live, because I am going to be resurrected, you will live also. Jesus holds out this amazing promise for his disciples. Resurrection life is available to you because I am alive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now in 21st century church, we're not left as orphans. He sent the Holy Spirit to what? Point us to the truth, to witness to the truth, so that we would recognize Jesus when he's speaking to us. And he's speaking to us. And he says, he even says in Hebrews chapter 13, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The promise he has made to his people over and over and over again. But how is that possible? After he ascended, he is manifested by being in us. And that's where we get to verse 20. Because he says, in that day, when he's resurrected and on his way to be ascended into the Father, he says, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. And as I said, something has fundamentally changed. Not only is Jesus in the resurrection body, but in his ascension, his going up to heaven, God sends the Holy Spirit, his presence. The Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ. In Romans 8, verse 9, and 1 Peter 1, verse 11, who, as verse 17 says, is in us after Christ's resurrection. And it is having him that we can know the truth, that Jesus is in his Father, and that by his grace we are in him, and he in us. And as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, you probably know this verse, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's a great mystery that has been revealed now that Christ has done what he's done. Paul said it, I think in Ephesians, he said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are given a new nature. Because when God saves you, when you respond in repenting faith, you are different. You are given a new nature, one that loves God and loves what God loves and hates what God hates. You are already, at that moment, more like Christ than the most morally upright unbeliever. And this mutual indwelling, which is what this is, is amazing, but it's real. He is manifested by being in us, and he is manifested by us loving him. 
because he says the command again. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I look across this congregation. And although I don't know every single one of you as completely as you are, are to be known, <laughs> I know some things about each of you, even if it's just guests and I know your name. Some of you have a joke for everything. Some of you are as dry as salted jerky. Some of you are deep thinkers. Some of you like to skip rocks on the top of that depth. Some of you wear your heart on your sleeve. And some of you are terrified of being known. As we interact, you manifest yourself to me. You become more recognizable to me. And as we interact, I become more recognizable to you. How much more, then, does Jesus, through, re through resurrection life, in being in us by his Holy Spirit, and through our loving him, is he manifested to, our, to us? Is he recognizable? Is he seen for us? We should live with the God we say we love. This is amazing. This is wonderful. These are wonderful promises. But we're not done yet because, as I said, God himself wants a relationship with us. And every member of God, three persons, one God, wants a relationship with us. God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, and finally, for us to live with God, the God we say we love, third, God the Father makes his home with us. Because Jesus says all these amazing promises, and then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but one of the other disciples, he says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. See, what Judas was asking here was a fundamental misunderstanding of Jesus' first coming that had been kind of churned up culturally and from select passages, not, reading the whole, not taking the whole thing of the Old Testament in ancient Judaism to say... When God comes in the flesh, he's going to come only to destroy the national enemies of Israel in glorious power and put down all idolatry and rebellion. So why doesn't the Father go for the big show of revealing Jesus as, the, as one of the scriptures says, as the glorious Son of Man coming on the clouds like everyone wanted, like all sorts of end times people want today. Why doesn't he first why doesn't he do that first? It'd be way easier. Everybody would know. It's so clear. Why not do that? 
How is it that you will manifest yourself to us? Well, the Father's aim is love of Jesus, not just a big show. Because you see, in their desire to want a political revolutionary to come, to want this big cataclysmic power, they had a wrong assumption. And the wrong assumption was that the problem was just out there for Israel. But the problem wasn't just outside the Israel, was it? The problem was in it. They had rejected their God. They didn't love him. And so the political revolution and the destruction of the pagans by God was going to include them. They and we needed him to come as a suffering servant who demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, as Romans says, Christ died for us. And he did it this way instead of showing up in a big display of um, crazy cataclysmic power first. He did it this way first so that his people would love him. They would be able to love him. And in so loving him, they would show the world by the indwelling presence of God in them that reconciliation to God the Father is actually possible through Jesus Christ. If anyone loves me, Jesus said, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. The Father's aim is love of Jesus, not love of the big show. Second, the Father's aim is permanence with his people. Verse 23, And my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is wild. God dwelling with us, in us. But in some ways that shouldn't be surprising at all because if we've been reading our Bibles, we would know that's been God's design and desire all along. God was in the garden with Adam and Eve. And when we go to the other side of the book, at the glorious climax of all history, what does God say is the glorious promise? Revelation 21, verse 3 through 4. What does it say? I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So what is going on here? What we experience on this side of eternal life as disciples of the Lord Jesus is the internal reality of what will one day be both internal and external everywhere. We as the people of God get an amazing grace to have the internal reality of what's to come. God the Father will make his home. Jesus the Son will make his home. Holy Spirit will make his home with us. And this isn't like moving as like an army brat. Okay? This is one home 
forever. That God will never leave us nor forsake us. And this is why we who love Jesus will obey his commands. Because God has laid the claim of permanence over our wills, our motives, our affections, our thoughts, our desires. His aim is permanence with his people. And third, the Father's aim is to be heard. Because Jesus ends this portion of the passage with, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. In this glorious truth that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love us, who believe in him so much that they would create this kind of relationship that we've been talking about, with us, with all of that great promise, there is a warning. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And if someone who someone does not keep Jesus' words, does not treasure them, does not repent of sin when convicted by them, does not submit to them, the reality is they're not just not paying attention to Christ. For the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Let's be warned. God is never mocked. If you persist in not listening to him, if you persist in not valuing what he has to say, none of these guarantees that we have talked about of a wonderful, amazing relationship with the Father are available to you. If you persist in rejecting him, if you persist in stopping your ears from him, you will find God only as your enemy. Not as your father, not as your savior, not as your helper. See, hell is not filled with lovers of God who just got it wrong. Hell is filled with those who have rejected God's aim to be heard. And the reason he includes that in this text today is the same reason that I would plead with you today. If you have stopped your ears from hearing God, that you hear him. that you repent and believe the gospel, believe the good news. We should live. We should live with the God we say we love. Have you heard the kind of relationship God wants to have with you? It's not one where you have you set half-baked and self-centered terms in your own sinfulness. No, that's not the relationship he wants with you. He wants one where we are freed to love him. For he has freely set his love on us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. 
God the Holy Spirit comes to help us. God the Son, Jesus the Son, manifests Himself to us. And God the Father makes His home with us. In us. And when we behold and know and love a God like this, we do not stay unchanged. The one who loves Jesus will grow to become more and more like Jesus, the firstborn Son of God. So when you hear, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, where has Jesus called you? Where has he called you to grow in obedience to him? Where does Jesus want you to look more like Christ? Who better reflects the essence of love more than Jesus? And who better to be with us, to help us do that? Not just now, but forever. So let us today live with the God we say we love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray You are worthy. Just in a few short verses, you have revealed amazing, amazing promises. And you have reminded us of the truth that we who trust in you and believe in you, you are with us and in us. And Father... I pray for my brothers and sisters in me. There are times. There are... I pray, Lord, that when we hear, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, we would know that you are the God of love who commands such a thing. That you don't leave us to do it on our own, but you give us your Holy Spirit to transform us so that we would obey your commands. Because in you we've been given a new heart. We've been given a new life. I pray, help us not to forget that. Help us not to forget that when the weak weighs down on us. Father, I confess it's been, it is a struggle right now because we have just scratched the surface. of what it means that you are with us, of what it means that you are in us, what it means that you have sent your Holy Spirit to your church. I pray, Father, you would help us live with you, whom we say we love. Thank you that you first loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.